You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Before we uh, open the Word of God, let's pray that God would open our hearts and minds to hear from Him. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, dependent on you. Thank you for this season. Thank you for this night of of remembering you coming to this earth, the living word, the one who uh, was God and was with God, took on flesh, dwelt among us to be our savior. So God, I pray now that as we open your word, Lord, that you would please uh, speak, Lord. I pray that it would not be my voice that's heard, but that your voice would speak through the pages of your scripture and through uh, this message given by your servant. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak, and we pray that we would hear with ears of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to be speaking tonight from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. And uh, it's the first book in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can notice around here that this isn't our permanent space. We're thankful to have the opportunity to rent this gym. So we don't have pew Bibles. We just have awesome ushers. So our ushers are going to be coming up and down the aisle right now. And so it's going to make a lot more sense if you're able actually to follow along with what I'm reading from the Bible right now. So as they're coming up their aisle, just um, uh, uh, wave your hand at them or holler at them and turn to Matthew chapter Two. You know, I got to be honest with you, I'm having a really difficult time with Ben Affleck as Batman. <laughs> like, I know Christian Bale was sort of the ultimate Batman. That's a super hard act to follow, but I recognize I'm not the only one because this sort of new generation of Batman is really not having the same success at the, at the box office. This new uh, Justice League uh, movie hasn't been quite as popular as uh, expected, but although I don't necessarily appreciate Ben Affleck's acting in the role of Batman, he had something to say about the movie that I thought was pretty profound. He said, Part of the appeal of this genre is wish fulfillment. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this? Save us from ourselves. Save us from the consequences of our actions. Save us from people who are evil. I really think Ben Affleck is is touching on something very important about our generation, about our society, that, that grown men and women spend 90 minutes in a theater hearing the retelling of a, a story intended for children in comic books. Why are we drawn to these, to these epic stories of superheroes? Affleck says it's because of a, a desire to have wishes fulfilled, Wanting someone to save us from, from ourselves, from consequences of our, of our actions, from, from the way things are, from the evil in this world. You see, we are living at a time where people are searching for something. I, I, I'm not sure if there's ever been a time where people have felt more let down by the people who are supposed to be their leaders. And, and maybe just for an hour and a half in a movie theater, we can, we can pretend like there is someone 
who truly can save the day. Well, if you're visiting our church tonight, we're so glad that you're here. For the last several months, we've been going through a series called Searching for a King. And we've been going back to about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ was born, when the monarchy was first established among the people of Israel. And, And we've been studying it not simply for the purpose of understanding some historical facts. No, we've been trying to find ourselves in the story because we're trying to understand what it means for us to be searching for a king. What kind of a king are we searching for? And in the book of Matthew, what we are told about people who came searching for a king, and we're going to hear their story tonight. It's going to come to us in three parts. The first, the first part is just an introduction to these characters. We're going to call them uh, the travelers. And so if you're taking notes today, just jot that down. These are the travelers. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it it rose, and have come to worship him. At the beginning of the verse there, it says, After Jesus was born. These wise men appeared sometime later. The shepherds, uh, they arrived the night of. The angels didn't give them much notice. They're like, it's happening tonight. It's right over there. And you need to go and find the child in the manger. Not so much with these wise men. They were warmed long in advance through a start. And their RSVP came in the form of a long journey just to get there. Notice also that there's a footnote in your Bible beside the word wise men. That's because the the term that's used there in in the Greek language in which Matthew was initially writing this is is a difficult word to define. You see, the Greek word magi is really just a transliteration of a Persian word that that sounds similar. And then the magi were, were... in, in Persian culture, they were this caste, this group, this class of people who were priestly monarch rulers. And, and, and they were a special category of people. It says that they came from the east and the, the Persian origin of their name would, 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 would pinpoint them somewhere in that part of the Middle East, present day Iraq. And these travelers came with a question, wanting to know where the king of the Jews was. And they had followed a star. Now these guys were kind of a combination between science and superstition. Sort of a a mixture of astronomy and astrology. Sort of a combination of, of those two Things And they were watching the skies and they saw something. It says, we saw his star when it rose. And we've come to worship him. Now a lot, a lot can be said about this star. Some people believe that it was Halley's Comet. About every 75 years, Halley's Comet makes an appearance in the past planet Earth. And right around the time when Christ was born, Halley's Comet passed by. 
Halley's Comet comes every 75 years, but every 800 years, Jupiter and Saturn, it's called a planetary conjunction. The two planets pass one another in, in their orbit, and it looks as though they almost touch. It almost creates this, 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 this vision of some sort of superstar. You wouldn't necessarily notice it, but if you were the kind of person who was watching the stars, you would have seen those two planets almost touch, like a new star, like a special Star. I don't know if it was something that was in nature, like, like a comet or like a planetary conjunction. I, know, I mean, we know that when the shepherds saw the angels, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. Maybe it was something supernatural. Maybe it was something special that God had put in the sky just for those magi to see. You see, some people want to know, were, were these magi, were they... Were they on this journey for the sake of scientific research? Or were they on some sort of religious pilgrimage? But I, I would ask a question before trying to answer that question. Why do we need to make a distinction between science and religion? Why do we need to have this, this sort of boundary of, oh, this is science and this is religious faith? Why can't it be both? Whether it was something supernatural that they saw in the sky or whether it was something that was natural, really ultimately both of those things point to God. I know my spiritual journey began by looking at the sky. I grew up in beautiful Hamilton, Ontario, and whenever I looked up in the sky, I saw smog. But I remember when I was six years old, having the opportunity to go to a summer camp in Muskoka. And I remember looking up in the sky and seeing stars. Stars from, from one horizon to the other. And the longer that I stared at the sky, the more stars that I saw. And on that night that I remember to this day, loved ones, I was simply seeing just a few of the 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And the Milky Way galaxy is one of 10 trillion galaxies. And then and the sun that I experienced that summer, the sun that was warming the skin on my face and tanning the skin on my arm, that sun was 149 million kilometers away, and yet I could feel it. And the closest star beyond the sun, one of those stars that I could see, the very closest one was 40 trillion kilometers away. I mean, that just sounds like a made-up number. Now, science would say, well, we know what a star is, and we, we, can, we can define what it's, what it's made of, and we can measure the distance between stars. But listen, if you are on a journey, a searching for truth, science is, you want science on, you want science as part of that journey. You want science to be traveling along with you. Some people think that in order to be religious, in order to have faith, you need to jettison science. Definitely don't jettison science. You want them on the journey, but you need to understand that science is a helpful partner on the journey, but they will not ultimately lead you to the destination. Eustace Scrub is this character in the Chronicles of Narnia. He, 
he is reluctantly sucked into this parallel universe, this fantasy world known as Narnia. And he, he's inter- he goes on this sea voyage, and he goes from island to island, land to land. He's interacting with all of these incredible creatures. And he meets this creature named Ramandu, and Ramandu is a star. And he's like, well, you're a star? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yes, I am a star. And Eustace, speaking from a scientific mindset, he says this, well, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. But then the star replies and says, well, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what a star is made of. Science can help us understand what something's made of. Science can understand a measurement of how far away something is. But science, as, as far as telling us what things are made of, what, things can, what measurements are, they can't tell us the meaning behind them. Stars point to the fact that someone must have made this. It's too beautiful. It's too big. It's too complicated. This is not an accident. I figured that out at six years old. That's when my journey began. And that's how the journey began for these travelers. Maybe you've been searching for something in your life. And you thought maybe it would come when when you achieved a a certain uh, academic status. When you got into that school or finished that degree. But but once once you got what you thought you were searching for, it seemed to elude you. It wasn't actually there. It wasn't what you were truly going after. Maybe you thought if I could change something about my appearance. or, Or if I could just have the security of that relationship. Or if I just accumulated enough wealth. We were searching for all of these things and when we think we have it we realize that we've been looking in all the wrong places we've actually been searching for the wrong thing and here's the incredible thing the incredible truth about these magi these incredible truth about us is that all the time that we're seeking a king the king is seeking us he put the star in the sky to lead these travelers to his son. So they come and they ask this question. Verse 3, though, says that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The second part of the story is the trouble. The trouble that in seeking a king, there will be trouble. And, And It says here that Herod the king was troubled when they came and that all of the city was troubled along. And now in order to understand why Herod was troubled and then in order to understand why the whole city would have been upset because their king was upset, you need to understand a little bit about history and a little bit about Herod in particular. Now, Jerusalem, the the centuries leading up to this point in time had sort of been run by the flavor of the month as far as world empires would go. They had just returned from the Babylonian exile after the Medo-Persians took over for Babylon. And then that area was sort of crisscrossed by the Syrians and then the Egyptians and then eventually the Greeks and then eventually the Romans just started bulldozing nations. And in 63 BC, uh, the Romans marched on Jerusalem and took it over. And Herod's father was made the procurator. It's kind of like being the premier of a province. 
And that he was, he was there to govern, sort of a lower level leader, to, to make sure that Roman rule was established in that area. But then shortly after, 44 BC, Julius Caesar gets assassinated and civil war erupts in Rome and Mark Antony emerges sort of from the ashes and Mark Antony appoints this Herod, the, the son of the first Herod. And he almost accidentally calls him king of the Jews. Here's our new leader, Herod, the king of the Jews. The funny thing about that is, you know, I mean, he's Caesar. He can call him whatever, whoever he wants. But the thing is that Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was from Idumea, a territory just to, the, just to the southeast. And he definitely wasn't a king. And so, and he knew it. And there was this sort of latent insecurity about Herod that he knew he, he knew he had the title of king, but he knew that he wasn't truly a king. And so he was always trying to overcompensate for the fact that he wasn't a king. Always trying to assert how strong and powerful he was. Knowing that he couldn't rule out of the legitimacy of his reign, so he had to rule sort of with an iron fist. And paranoia eventually dominated Herod's life. So much so that the list of people that Herod killed for potential treason was very long and it included his wife, it included his sons, it included his close friends, his in-laws. And so the people of why are the people of Jerusalem troubled when Herod's troubled because they know when Herod's upset someone's going to die. That he's going to go on the warpath and start attacking people and executing people. Now, it's easy for us from this perspective to look back into history and think, what an awful person. It's easy for us to, to, to go through the pages of history and look at all of these different tyrants and dictators. It's even easy to look at our newsfeed on our phones and look at different leaders and different nations and say, what a horrible person. And then we so often uh, quote John Acton who said, you know, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think he's on to something when he says that. But I think he's missing a really important ingredient. Because what we don't understand when we judge people like Herod, when we judge these other rulers throughout history and even today, is we, we miss the fact that power doesn't corrupt. The problem is not power. The problem is people. People come pre-corrupted. Power just brings to the surface what was already there. And we can sit and judge other people. We've never had the opportunity to have that kind of power. We don't know what it would do to us if we were in that position. We've never had the luxury of people wanting to please us and do everything we say and completely unwilling to question our authority. But Herod... Had that Herod had that opportunity and he failed. So many dictators and rulers had that opportunity and they failed. I'm not, I'm not telling you to go easy on those people. I'm just telling you that the problem is not just out there. The problem is in here. Timothy Keller uh, words it so beautifully. He says, at the core of every human heart is an impulse that says, no one tells me what to do. 
culture and training can go a long way toward teaching us to hide that deep instinct even from ourselves. We want to be seen as cooperative, as a, as a team player. And as a kind and loving person, we want to see ourselves that way too. There are many reasons why it's necessary for us to live in denial as to how powerful this instinct is. However, no amount of education or therapy can remove it. According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and desires. We, we do not want to serve God or our neighbor. We want them to serve us. In every human heart, then, there's a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be captain of our own soul the master of our own fate. You see, there's trouble when these travelers arrive because they brought news of a new king. And Herod was not willing to submit and to serve a new king. He wanted to be king. And if you're here today and you're searching for something. Many of us are searching for sort of religious fulfillment in our life to help us in our rulership, in our reign. But that's not where the search is ultimately going to take you. The search will take you to a king who demands our ultimate allegiance and submission and service. A good king, a loving king. And so we need to get ourselves off of the throne and acknowledge the true king that is on the throne. Herod refused to do that. In verse 4, it says, Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote here uh, the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means... Least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Herod, again, wasn't Jewish, but he was the king of the Jews. He wasn't that familiar with the Jewish scriptures, and so he called together all of the clergy, all of the all of the Bible professors, all of the scribes, the high priests, and he asked them the question. They knew the answer right away. They didn't have to go looking, do their research. Where's the Christ to be born? Oh, yeah, Bethlehem. It's supposed to be in Bethlehem, Micah 5 2. They knew it. You see, the Bible is like any other book. Like any other, it's unparalleled even among religious literature because the Bible repeatedly and accurately predicts the future. And it has an incredible track record of. of of predicting historical events before they happen. It's even happening and it's even unfolding before our eyes right now. The Bible, because it is written by the one and only true God who knows the future, authenticates this book by revealing the future in advance so that we can believe it and trust it. And Jesus' life 
was really a fulfillment of all of these predictions that were made hundreds of years before Christ ever walked the earth, including his birthplace, which was prophesied by the prophet Micah. So they, they knew where to look. They looked in Bethlehem. They had a question about the king, and they went to the Bible. You see, if you are on this sort of sacred search, this journey, your search will ultimately lead you to the scriptures. If you're seeking after truth, you can't put this book aside. Because this book is the source of truth. The search will take you to the scripture, and the scripture will take you to the Son. The Son of God, who was born in Bethlehem. Verse 7, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now this was just a sinister move by Herod. He has no desire to come and worship him. He has a desire to come and kill him. Because Herod wanted to be king. In fact, as the story unfolds at the end of Matthew chapter 2, Herod uh, kills all of the children of a certain age in Bethlehem, slaughters them. Why? Because his paranoia, his desire to rule and to be in charge dominated his life so much that he was able to do something so evil, so heinous, without giving it a second thought. Verse 9 says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I think this is evidence that, that, that this, was, this was not just some comet or planetary conjunction. That, that the star is literally leading them somehow, pointing them to the place where Jesus was. Verse 11, going into the house, not the stable, because this happened uh, later Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Grown men bowing down before a child. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The third part of the story is the treasures. The treasures. As, as an expression of worship, they offer treasures to this child. You see, the, the etymology of the word worship is, is the word worth. We worship that which we think is worth something. And the gifts that they offer the child, the most expensive things they could bring, gold, frankincense, and more, were an expression of the worth of the king that they had come to worship. Now, gold is pretty straightforward in its uh, symbolism. Um, gold is, is, is precious. Gold is strong. Gold is refined and pure. Gold, almost coast to coast, is universally recognized as a sign of royalty. Kings have golden thrones. They, they wear golden crowns on their heads. They sit in rooms Paneled with gold, it's, it's, it's equated with royalty. So they're declaring that this child, as they've been calling him, that he is a king. That's why they offer him gold. Now, so gold is something we're familiar with. Now, frankincense and myrrh, unless you're one of those people who's super into essential oils, 
You're probably not that familiar with, with frankincense and myrrh, but in the backdrop of all of these symbols is a God, again, who, is, who knows the beginning from the end. And even though the wise men might not have known what was going on when they're giving these gifts, God, who is orchestrating all of these things, knows, knows the symbolism behind them. The first one is a frankincense. A frankincense is, a, is an incense. It, it, it comes from a tree's. And the way that frankincense is made, actually myrrh is made the same way. That you, you go to a tree with a knife or with an axe or with a saw and you slash the tree just below the bark. You scour it. You scar the tree all over. All over its trunk and its branches. And then from the, the, the wounds of the tree, the tree then starts to bleed out sap or, or, or resin. And then that sap eventually hardens, becomes things called tears. And then you come along, after the sap has come out, after it's crystallized, after it's hardened, you come along and you scrape the tears of frankincense or the tears of, of myrrh off the tree. So this is, what, this is what the tears of frankincense look like and, and then myrrh looks very similar, just a little bit darker. Now, frankincense was used in worship at the temple. Frankincense was used as, as something to burn to show the presence of God, to show that God was present. Some of you might have gone to a, a Christian church that was, that was more traditional and part of the worship service would have involved incense coming down the, down the aisle. And what is that a symbol of? It's a symbol of the presence of God, that God is spirit. And so the smoke of the incense evokes the idea of the Spirit. And so when they were giving frankincense, it was showing that this king who received the gold was God. That, that he was the, the great Spirit. That he was the, the creator of all things. The one who was worshipped at the temple with this kind of smoke. It was a picture of his deity, his divinity, that this king was in fact God. Now myrrh, on the other hand, was not used in temple worship. Myrrh was sometimes mixed with liquid to become sort of like a crude anesthetic to ease your pain and suffering. Myrrh was also used as a medicine or ointment to rub on flesh. That was the most common use for it. And so Frankincense, smoke, showed that this king was God. But the myrrh showed that this God had come with flesh, the kind of flesh that you would rub myrrh into. But then the, the myrrh imagery goes even deeper because Jewish burial customs involved myrrh. That the smell of myrrh this sort of, this medicinal smell meant that you were either sick or wounded or that someone died. In fact, when Jesus was crucified and taken down from the cross, this is what took place. In, in John chapter 19, it says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus Bounded in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
And so whether or not the Magi recognized this when they brought the gift in the first place or not, Jewish burial custom was that myrrh was to be used when someone died. And so gold shows that he's the king. Frankincense shows that he's God. Myrrh shows that he has come in the flesh and come for a purpose. He has come to die. To die as our sacrifice for sin. You see, this king came on a mission. This, you may be seeking for a king, but this king came seeking for you. And he came to seek and to save us. And this king, who was a, a child when he received this gifts, these gifts, but eventually grew to be a man. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, never did anything wrong. But was falsely accused and was nailed to the cross and suffered and died. And as he was dying on the cross, it was as though he was telling his father, blame me. Blame me, father, for their sin." Blame me for Ted's sin. Blame me for his sin. Blame me for her sin. You see, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. To turn your back on the creator of life, the natural consequence is to experience death. And Jesus came. He lived the life we should have lived, but then died the death that we all deserve to die, and he suffered as our substitute. And so this God who is orchestrating everything behind the scenes sends the star to lead these magi, to give this gift which ultimately lays out the story of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And these magi came and they brought their treasures, they brought their offering. They, they brought the greatest gift, but God gave a greater gift, his son. God gave a greater offering, the cross. And they came a great distance all the way from the east, all the way to Jerusalem, but Christ came a greater distance from heaven to earth. And they came seeking a king while the king came seeking them. You see, God loved these wise men and he orchestrated events to bring them to meet his son so that they could worship him and serve him as king. How has God been orchestrating events in your life to bring you to this point to hear this message about his son? God might have not put a star in the sky for you to get here tonight. But he put an invitation in your hand. He put a Christian loved one, a family member, a friend. He put them in your life for a reason. Because he wants you to know his son. He wants you to experience forgiveness for your sin. He wants you to recognize gold that he's the king, frankincense that he's God, myrrh that he came in the flesh to die for you. How will you respond to him tonight? I'm going to close our time now in a word of prayer. And if God is speaking to you tonight, if you can see how he's orchestrating things, and if things are starting to click, I'm going to pray a very simple, a very general prayer. 
A prayer that any Christian would already believe, but maybe you want to declare this prayer, pray this to God for the very first time tonight. Maybe you came in here not even knowing that you were seeking for a king and and realizing that all this time you have been and all this time he's been seeking you. And maybe tonight's the night where you step off the throne of your life and give the throne to the one to whom it belongs, King Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem. And so I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and you can, if you want, you can quietly repeat after me, or you can pray it in your own mind, in your own words. But this is how to begin a life of worship and submission to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. God, we acknowledge some of us for the first time that we believe in you tonight. And we admit and we confess that we have sinned against you. There are things that we've done that we shouldn't have done. There are words that have come out of our mouths that we shouldn't have said. There are even thoughts that we've entertained in our mind and in our hearts that have been wrong and evil and wicked. We also admit tonight that There are things that we should have done, but we just didn't do. And there are things that we should have said, but we left unsaid. That we are guilty because of things we've done, and we're guilty because of things we haven't done. But God, we believe tonight that you sent your son, King Jesus, to live a perfect life so that our sinfulness could be exchanged for his righteousness. And I declare my commitment, my allegiance, my full submission to you as my king. I will do what you tell me to do I will go where you tell me to go and I will be who you want me to be. In the name of Jesus, my King, we pray. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.